Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD in Russian Lit. This week, unfortunately, was unable to prevent my dog from sniffing out the rabbits in my backyard. <laughs> R.I.P. It was a massacre. <laughs> I'm Cameron Lalana. This last weekend, I went uh, camping with my girlfriend and some friends up north and near Camptonville, and it was like a true return to the 90s. I'm talking about uh, just endless white people with dread, aging hippies, crust punks. There were somehow three simultaneous festivals all about the Grateful Dead. Wow. <laughs> Several Grateful Dead cover bands just being posted outside of like stores also the wi-fi is basically non-existent so like radio and like posters outside of the stores were really the way that you could communicate information truly loved it out there it felt like where we were meant to be i'm sorry you what was the name of where you were camping <laughs> it sounds fake it's called camptonville i don't think that's real northern california town names were i think largely named by like drunken <laughs> not exactly this job like beaver pelt hunters because it's stuff like and these are all real camptonville whiskeyville boonesville nevada city which is not nevada hmm. i would go to whiskeyville whiskeyville's all right i would actually recommend boonesville over whiskeyville but is whiskeyville like it sounds no Filled with whiskey but and vils no boonesville does have a lot of wineries though so that's why i'd recommend that one it's nearby i think i forget honestly after a certain point i know northern california is like a solid five hours of driving but i don't know once you get north of yuba and you're still south of shasta it's kind of all it's kind of all a blur. These names mean nothing to me. <laughs> the only one that rang a bell was was Whiskeyville, but it's not a place I've physically. You don't been know to. the great, the great Yuba City, which provides Japan a great deal of its rice every year, and the great Mount Shasta, which is a big mountain. <laughs> no, oh, okay. I, I know Whiskeyville, well. which is where I'm spiritually located tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's where I am too. Cheers to that. So, uh, well, let's talk about that in a second. Yes, this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we are cranking through Stalingrad, part five of our 10-part series, though technically we go past the halfway part of the book on this episode. So mm -hmm. that's exciting. It feels good it when is. you're making that trek down the mountain of the 950-page book. And you get past page 500 and you're like, all right, we can do it. <laughs> the end is in sight. The end is in sight, kind of-ish. Ish, It's I mean, like the length of two normal books, but still, that would be the end. <laughs> <laughs> Reading the big book has fundamentally altered our idea of what's a normal amount of pages to have left. <laughs> yeah. People are going to be like, what did you do this time around? I was like, I read a book. <laughs> Stalingrad, I read it. Yeah, just Stalingrad and books about Stalingrad. Basically. Actually, my, my, my comfort reading, my like getting away from Stalingrad and books about Stalingrad reading has also been, I've been going back to Adam Hochschild, who's one of my favorite writers, but I was reading The Unquiet Ghost, which is just about the after effects of the purges. Mm. So I'm also not really escaping it. Yeah. I also, I can't stress enough for me how slow of a read this is. And not not mm. because it's bad, but like I'm trying to savor and get into everything that i'm reading and i also constantly am checking who is who there's so many characters <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with with a character and you're like oh this is a new character okay i'm glad we're getting into someone else and then you're like wait a minute no this guy was mentioned like 300 pages ago yeah. <laughs> like wait a minute i know his whole backstory yeah it's a lot mm -hmm. it 
takes me a while. But I was telling my girlfriend, I was like, oh, I only have like, I don't know, 80 or 90 more pages. And she's like, okay, it's like, you know, two hours or so of reading. And I was like, no, not for this. It's going to be no. <laughs> my whole afternoon. Yeah. So that's, well, it's fun. It, it's a good time. But uh, before we get into that, two things. First of all, we'd like to extend a sincere thank you to our newest patrons, Amanda, Blake, Shannon, and Jay. Uh, thank you all so much for subscribing during one of our weirder series. Uh, it's much appreciated. And importantly, Matt, I got to ask you, we made reference to you know, our spiritual homes earlier. Mm-hmm. What are you drinking today? I'm drinking just <laughs> straight Jack Daniels whiskey on the Hell rock. Yeah. Yes. Nice. One rock. On my, one singular rock. My new fridge. Hear me out. This is the greatest invention okay. known okay. to humankind. Okay. It has a craft ice maker in the freezer. It makes really three spherical cubes every day. <laughs> that's pretty cool. It's wow, that's pretty. I good. like that. It's pretty good. And that's okay. So I thought I would desecrate one of them with just straight Jack. Right. Right. So <laughs> that's where I'm going. What are you drinking? Very nice. Uh, similar, I'm also doing an act of desecration against whiskey. Uh, Matt was telling me I really need to just like, you know, get over myself on this one, but I don't like buying bottles of liquor on weekdays. It feels wrong. So instead I bought a cocktail called On The Rocks Premium Cocktail, old fashioned, which is literally just half of a whiskey bottle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's 375 milliliters. So just like a, an overpriced half of a whiskey bottle that has some bitters in it, but it's not bad. Does I didn't it, have to add the bitters myself. Out? A fancy bottle that makes you feel better about it does yourself. come in a fancy bottle yeah, it does. i will i will you. probably be taking i will probably be taking the label off and then using this for like something else around the house i don't know if that's uh kitschy or, or whatever but man i just love getting glass bottles of the products and then using them to store everyday goods yeah that's what i do we put our uh we put our bathroom soaps in whiskey bottles our dish soap we have whiskey bottle <laughs> uh, we drink only out of uh empty whiskey bottles <laughs> um, we put our condiments, ketchup, mustard, mayo. We put those down in whiskey bottles. It's a little inconvenient with the mayo. Right. Um, right. <laughs> my, my fridge drawers, I just thought it would be cool if I filled them with whiskey bottles. Yeah. Um, right. Instead of Christmas lights, I hang up whiskey mm-hmm. bottles with lights. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if it is. Maybe it's a little yeah. much to some. I think it's going to be really inviting to your new neighbors. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. I think they're going to look at that and be like, wow, they're so resourceful. If you or someone you know and or love works at a company that makes whiskey, it can be our official whiskey. We'll do it. <laughs> we'll do it. I'll yeah, string it's, it's my easy. my holiday lights up with your loved one's whiskey bottles. <laughs> Probably. Probably. This oh, is we should not do a podcast, podcast about whiskey, although we should do a podcast mm-hmm. about whiskey. It'd be fun. Mm-hmm. When I say a podcast about whiskey, I mean a podcast where we just drink whiskey, which I guess is kind of what we're doing already. I know we've said it, but I still think the idea of two guys talking unbeatable in this market. Where else are you going to find that? <laughs> well, the problem is we used to joke about like the idea, the idea of like, oh, just two dudes banter and podcast. That used to be a joke we made because so, that's like roughly, I'm going to say 65 to 70 percent of podcasts. And now that's what we are. There's so. no statistics on that, but you know, it's true just deep down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we are. We are eight minutes in. So we are truly a, just a dude's banter and podcast at this point. But let's get on with it. Okay, so for today's context, we're actually going to be finally talking about the book Stalingrad itself, or rather talking about the long and arduous process of getting Stalingrad published. But before we get into Stalingrad itself, or I mean, talking about Stalingrad in its historical context itself, not Stalingrad itself, sorry, that's confusing. 
one of the many confusing things about long series like these, I want to go to our book of the week, which is Quartered Safe Out Here, A Recollection of the War in Burma by George MacDonald Fraser. One of my goals in bringing these books that I have on the list is to talk about some of the elements of the war, which isn't so commonly portrayed in more, I don't want to say mainstream, but more like popular media, maybe. Um, that's to say viewpoints that are not strictly from, you know, Western, like white American, British, French points of view, talking from the Eastern Front, which largely Stalingrad does address more so, although obviously not completely uh, talking about the social and political dimensions between in the Pacific War, Chinese intellectuals, their take on it. And this is an interesting, this is kind of continuing on that. In that quartered safe out here is a recollection of British colonial troops fighting against the uh, the Japanese in Burma during World War II, uh, which is, I'm willing to bet, probably not an aspect of World War II that you've given too much thought to or read too much about. Um, definitely the author goes on a bit of a screed at the end of the book, which is uh, a little, uh, hmm, for lack of a better word, very crotchety old manny. But for the most part, I think it's a worthwhile book to examine some of the lesser known uh, parts of the war, although obviously filtered through the lens of a British soldier in Burma. And that comes with the baggage of, you know, <laughs> the attitudes towards uh, non or towards other Burmese or uh, non-British troops from the other areas in the British Empire that Fraser has, but still an interesting book. So picking up on the thread where we left off last time, the year is 1945, uh, the war is now, it's, it's over, and the Literary Gazette announces that Grossman has been working on a book about the war for at least a year at this point, which is, the book is Stalingrad. And of course, earlier in the war, he's already published The People Immortal, which was re released to widespread acclaim, but now he has a book which he wants to use to portray as he did in The People Immortal, the real experience of the war, especially focusing on the people who did go through the war. I think we've mentioned this story before, but uh, just to reinforce it, in, in May 1945, the Literary Gazette asked Grossman to contribute his thoughts on the end of the war, and he sends them a story in which he's watching a battle with a division commander, uh, and the colonel turns to him and says, well, I'm sweating now, but after the war, it will be the writer's turn to sweat and describe it all. He would then go on to say in that article that writers should be responsible for truthfully depicting the war and describing extant attempts at the time for as, as miserable, hasty, and superficial, which probably didn't win him too many friends on that particular front. The next year, it started well for Grossman. Uh, the, his play, If You Believe the Pythagoreans, was published, and that was written before the war, but now it's finally actually in print. And he seems to be doing relatively well. And this changes was when Andrei Zhdanov, who was in charge of the ideological and cultural policies for the Central Committee, uh, began a campaign against so-called cosmopolitanism, American and European bourgeois culture. Now, in this era, there's a lot of campaigning against cosmopolitanism in, in the arts and in professional disciplines. And in a lot of ways, that is is intended to mean kind of bourgeois behavior, but at the same time, it also means frankly, Jewishness, which would extend into a much more openly anti-Semitic campaign in, in the following years. In, in 1946, the Literary Gazette and Pravda attacked Grossman's play, if you believe the Pythagoreans, for anti-Soviet themes. Uh, for example, the play is steeped in Pythagorean philosophy, which includes the notion of historical cyclicalness, uh, which is kind of opposite a view of a Marxist view of history as essentially Hegelian or moving forward. Uh, historical cyclicalness implies that you are not in a sort of Marxist end of days where we have moved beyond capitalism, but in fact, this is a phase in history and you could return to a capitalist epoch. 
Now, of course, maybe given the history of the Soviet Union after that, there's something to be said for historical cyclicalness. And I've always been one to say that maybe we've invested a little bit too much in the idea of history as advancement, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and you can actually see this this uh, debate between Sturm and Chaputian in Stalingrad, um, debating between historical um, uh, history as, as a forward line and history as a cycle. And so the, this, this campaign against so-called cosmopolitanism would continue and would haunt Grossman and many other uh, Jewish writers, doctors, professionals, and in many disciplines, really coming to its apotheosis in, um, or apotheosis in terms of, of violence, nadir, in terms of morality in the, in the early 50s. And, and at the same time, there are other projects that Grossman was also trying to work on at this time. For example, he pitched a, a Soviet biography, or the first Soviet biography of Dostoevsky. Uh, Dostoevsky was not much taunt in the Soviet Union, unlike other writers such as Tolstoy, who um, were kind of brought in because of other themes, the explicit religiosity that underlines a lot of Dostoevsky's work made it kind of a not a not a favorite author, to say it lightly. But his uh, pitch to write the Soviet biography of Dostoevsky would be turned down. Now, I briefly mentioned before that uh, Grossman's also working on the Black Book around this time. Now, the Americans and the Soviets are working on this together, and they're they're due to pu be published in 1946. Uh, however, despite sharing material, what was actually ended up being published, or what was end up being scheduled, I will say, to be published, actually differed greatly. In the American version, only a small amount of Soviet materials were actually included. To take a line from Popoff, summarizing the differences, Grossman wrote that the American version elucidated on how the final solution was planned, while the Soviet edition told how it was carried out. This American edition, supported by figures like Albert Einstein and Eleanor Roosevelt, would be published on schedule in 1946. Uh, however, in the Soviet Union, although Grossman and other members of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee lobbied hard to get the publication through, the Department of Agitation and Propaganda would allege that the book provided a false picture of the nature of fascism, with several other complaints against the book by government entities it would go on to be banned in 1947 uh, instead of being published as planned. Although the book would also be sent around the world it, in following decades would be published um, here and there by various, uh, I think it was first published in Israel in the 1980s, and later on it would be translated and published in the U.S. and Britain, and actually a Russian language edition was not released until 2015 in Russia itself. Now the undercurrent, and the, this will become much more explicit later, but the undercurrent uh, is sort of a, a growing anti-Semitic I mean, not that it was growing. There was already great anti-Semitic feeling, but acting upon great anti-Semitic feelings uh, for reasons both concrete and ideological. There were a series of arrests, ex executions, and murders of Jews uh, broadly across the Soviet Union, but especially of those associated with the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. Uh, and in his book, Memoirs, Khrushchev would recall uh, an incident wherein Stalin once proposed that Khrushchev instigate a pogrom against Jewish people. In this time, uh, the Leningrad philologist Olga Friedenberg wrote to his cousin Boris Pasternak, One should see the pogrom as carried out in our department. Groups of students rummage through the works of Jewish professors, eavesdrop on private conversations, whisper in corners. Jews no longer receive an education, are no longer accepted at universities or for graduate study. The finest professors have been dismissed. The murder of the remaining intelligentsia goes on without cease. And so this broader anti-Semitic sentiment, although I, it's worth a, a just talking about in general, also specifically talking about the publishing of Stalingrad would seriously affect it. And the many years it would take to be published, um, keep in mind that Stalingrad was not published until 1952, and in that time would go through 10 separate revisions or like major you know, final attempts to publish the book. So there were a lot of features that became issues for 
individual editors or for various committees that were reading the book. Well, let's go back to kind of the beginning of how Stalingrad became, went from a, just a piece of writing to something that was going through this editing process. When a colleague of Grossman's, uh, Simonov, became the editor of Novi Mir, he decided that he might have better luck getting published with, with Novi Mir. So he withdrew his, um, his, his contract with the Literary Gazette and went there to try to get published with them. The editors there were really enthusiastic about it and wanted to get right on publishing the work. But even in those early days when there was a lot of enthusiasm for the work, there were still some members of the editorial board who had problems with it. One member, Boris Agapov, was particularly concerned by Grossman's focus on the so-called negative aspects of the war. In one meeting, Grossman would record an exchange he had with Agapov. Agapov would tell him, I want to make your novel safe from an ideological standpoint, to which Grossman would respond, Boris Nikolaevich, I don't want to make my novel safe. And you can see that in a lot of features in, in the novel. I mean, the, uh, I think we will not be seeing this in this section, but in part six of the series, we'll be seeing a scene where Hitler and Himmler discuss the final solution, uh, which would make it through to the final story. Um, we previously saw Victor's mother writing Victor a final letter uh, from the Jewish ghetto in her Nazi-occupied town. Grossman did write, but would remove from Stalingrad would later be included in Life and Fate. So there were a lot of things that were not exactly safe. And at this time, there was so much enthusiasm from so many editors that even these members who brought up these concerns were, were more or less overlooked, or at least as they were overlooked as much as they, as they could at the time. As an aside, I also want to point out the great amount of primary source reading that Grossman did to write Stalingrad. Uh, keep in mind the very opening of the book of Hitler and Mussolini meeting in Salzburg to discuss the invasion of the Soviet Union. That scene was depicted utilizing information in diaries kept by Mussolini's foreign minister and son-in-law to inform the attitudes they had towards each other. And Grossman had access to a great deal of primary sources that most other Soviet authors did not have. And it's not entirely clear how he did get access to it, not only from the Italians, but also from Americans, Germans, etc. And uh, Popoff suggests in, in Vasily Grossman in the Soviet century that this is perhaps due to the journalist Ehrenberg, who we've mentioned previously, who would travel abroad on, on several occasions and perhaps got him this material. In the middle of doing all these rewrites to get it through these editors, Simonov would actually leave Novi Mir and would be replaced by Tvardovsky. Now, Tvardovsky was a uh, a wartime colleague of Grossman, but in this new position proved, although very friendly during the war, to be much less sympathetic to him and much more worried about the, as Agapov talked about, the unsafe elements of the book ideologically. And he actually wanted him to cut away most of the family elements, focusing more so on the war itself. But of course, if you've been following along at all, you know that you can't really cut away the family life because that is the book itself. Uh, I'm going to take a kind of a long excerpt from Popoff's book here. The literary magazines were aware that Stalin anticipated a Soviet war on peace. They were eager to publish an epic war novel, a potential winner of the Stalin Prize. Grossman's novel had many intentional parallels with Tolstoy's. Back in 1943, when he was developing the plot for the entire novel, Grossman compared it against the structure of war on peace. He drew up a list of protagonists from the first part of Tolstoy's epic. Some of Grossman's characters, for example, the three Shaposhnikov sisters, suggest a parallel with the Rostov sisters. Grossman was engaging in a dialogue with Tolstoy. As is apparent from his research notes, he intended to show how life changed over 100 years. Grossman's protagonist, Lieutenant Colonel Dorensky, a descendant of Russian nobility, shared some personal qualities with Prince Bolkonsky from Tolstoy's novel, but with a different destiny. Far from being valued in the army, Dorensky is arrested during Stalin's military purge. As Grossman writes in his notes, You alone, Prince, are a fragment of those who are Tolstoy's main characters. If he wanted to write his novel today, 
what a different slice of life we would have to choose. Grossman's heroes fought in Stalingrad, or Soviet POWs in Dachau, were marched to Treblinka's gas chamber, and, like Shroom and the physicists around him, worked on the Soviet nuclear program. As this process continued, Tvardovsky would kind of come to the conclusion that no part of Grossman's novel were really safe to publish. He did not emphasize the role of the party and Stalin in the victory, instead attributing it to the ordinary soldiers, by and large. He wrote about chaotic losses, retreat, troops caught in encirclement, all features of not only Stalingrad, but also the people immortal. And let's keep in mind that that was also a problem during the war, although it uh, was popular among the people who were reading it because it rang true to their own experiences. I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but Grossman proved really obstinate about a lot of these revisions and pushed back on a lot of them, although still Stalingrad would go through 10 revisions before it was finally published in 1952. After years of revisions already, a denunciation by Mikhail Bubinov, who was a member of the editorial board, made the process even more complex as, the, uh, as he sent a letter to the Central Committee and publication of the book was halted. The book was reviewed by the head of the Institute of Department of Agitation and Propaganda, the Marx-Engels-Lenin Institution, and then further appraised by Georgi Melenkov, who was the secretary of the Central Committee. A lot of people getting into this process. And even with all these people in here, it's, it's still astounding how many like really on the surface allusions that are really not, so to speak, kosher are in this book. Um, the character of Victor Shroom is uh, in, as we understand it now, an apparent homage to a, a student, uh, well, a man, a phys nuclear physicist that Grossman knew as a student, Lev Shroom, uh, who Grossman would in the late 20s write to his father about meeting and borrowing some money from. Shroom would be arrested and shot as an enemy of the people in 1936. Uh, so taking Shroom's name and giving him roughly the career he had, uh, Grossman then gives this character, Victor Shroom, his own personality, becoming his own alter, e alter ego in a way in the book. Tarodovsky was really uncomfortable with Victor Shroom, such a major character, being Jewish and, and also kind of having this, this position and proposed to Grossman, what if you make Shroom the head of a military retail shop? To which Grossman would retort, in what position would you assign to Einstein? So still in this limbo, especially because there's so many people, so many, so to speak, chefs poking their head into the kitchen, uh, Grossman would get a kind of a, a support, a sudden surprise support from the head of the writers' union, Fedeyev. Uh, although Fedeyev was one of the authors who had led the campaign against cosmopolitanism, it appeared that he privately despised anti-Semitism, and Popov suggests that this support for Grossman was a form of penance for him. But Tvardovsky was still unwilling to publish with the explicit go-ahead of the Central Committee. But in 1951, they seemed to have a really high opinion of the novel and just said, hey, just a couple more things. Uh, put new chapters about wartime work in the rear. Uh, insert the current official view about the wartime alliance with England and America and remove Shroom. Grossman agreed to the first two but said, I am not removing Shroom. And as a compromise, Tvardovsky said, why don't you introduce another Russian physicist who would become the character Chapesian, who is Shroom's uh, mentor or was a mentor when he was younger. And, and it should be noted here that even though things are going relatively well for, for, for Grossman, the anti-Semitic violence of the state is ticking up. Jews were being arrested in, of, of, in every profession around the country, even inside the Ministry for State Security. The Jewish personnel uh, inside the Ministry for State Security were arrested and forced to confess under duress, well, under torture, that there was an anti-Soviet conspiracy in the Ministry that had ties to the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. And this uh, even extended to incidents in just everyday life. On one occasion, Grossman recalls going to dine with a colleague downtown and having to, because there is an event in Moscow at the time, uh, having to share a table with a famous athlete, Grigory Novak. And at one point, uh, as they're just about to raise a toast, a big man approaches the table, chanting an anti-Semitic rhyme. Uh, Novak would rise, make a hardly perceptible movement, sending the man flying. Grossman would say to this, 
you found the only appropriate argument. With this rise in, in anti-Semitic public fervor, uh, the book was once again thrown into kind of a, a state of will it, will it not be published? It's hard to say. And at this point, it's been so many years. I mean, Grossman's been writing this book since at least 1944. It's now, you know, 1951, seven years onward. He writes to Fadeyev, I've got to the point where hope no longer helps. It torments. After seven years of work, two years of editing, revising, rewriting, I want to tell the comrade, I have no more strength to give. Give me any reply, as long as it's final. And this continues to 1952, when his editors, Twardovsky and Fadeyev, are basically in hiding from him. But still, even without explicit committee support, Fadeyev says, seems to give it the go-ahead, and it begins to be published in June. And through the rest of the year, things go really well, because people love the novel. Writers are writing him and, and thanking him for, for publishing it and saying, we can't get enough of it. It is a huge hit. People recognize themselves in the book, um, and they recognize the the vulnerable, the ones who were not talked about, war orphans, refugees, uh, the young who had wanted to live but had to die in the conflict. Now, unfortunately, this publication and this, this high claim would coincide with the secret trial of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. Uh, they had all been arrested and were, would eventually be condemned to death and their families sent to um, Kazakhstan or Siberia. So even as the Stalingrad itself is finishing a publication, it was published serially until October, Fadeyev would nominate it for the Stalin Prize, uh, perhaps as a way to prevent it from getting criticism down the line. It was so popular that two separate publishing houses wanted to launch editions of the novel. And this all came to a sudden halt in December of 1952, when Stalin declares in a presidium meeting that every Jew is a nationalist and an agent of American intelligence, and began a campaign against Jewish doctors in the so-called plot to kill Stalin, uh, by a number of doctors who are primarily Jewish. This becomes front page news, and at the same time, the very same publishing houses that had so wanted to put out Stalingrad just are absolutely rushing to denounce it, including uh, a number of individuals on the editing committees who were Grossman's acquaintances and colleagues. Of these meetings, Grossman would attend only one held at Novi Mir uh, at Tvarodovsky's insistence, and an author would show up, Ivan Aramilov, uh, would show up saying, saying that the Jewish theme took a disproportionately large part in the novel that the annihilation of the Jewish nation was not the fascist's main plan. Grossman would respond that the final solution was a historical fact. In the same year, Grossman would be summoned to Pravda to discuss the, quote, future of the Jewish people, and while there, Jewish artists, writers, and scholars would sit in a meeting hall and be induced to sign an open letter, demanding punishment for the doctors on trial. Uh, Grossman would be sitting next to Margarita Alliger, who is another contributor to the Black Book. Both of them would go on to sign the letter. Although the letter was itself never published, Grossman would never forgive himself and portrayed the action as happening to Victor Strum in the follow-up to Stalingrad Life and Fate. Now, this slew of attacks against uh, Grossman and Stalingrad, accusing him of failing to show the importance of the party, portraying too many Jewish characters, uh, even Novi Mir, which had published the novel serially, would publish a statement saying that this has, was a grave mistake to publish this, and at this time Grossman would flee to his friend Lipkin's dacha. Now, fortunately for, for Grossman and many other Jewish people around the time, uh, you know, there were, there were lists which had names of people who were probably slated to be arrested or executed, you know, on, on which list Grossman was present. Uh, before this could go forward, Stalin would die on the 5th of March. Although the anti-Semitic campaign would not cease with Stalin's death. Even, in fact, on the very next day, Simonov, who was, I should remind you, the man who Grossman had first taken Stalingrad to at Novi Mir, now the editor of the Literary Gazette, published a list of Jewish writers who she thought should be expelled from the Writers' Union, referring to them as dead weight. Uh, Tvardovsky and Fadeyev, the primary editors, would denounce the novel later in March. The campaign would continue more or less until the Kremlin 
finally disavowed the doctor's plot, the, the so-called doctor's plot, in early April. Now, this is where attitudes, or at least publicly, the, the public, I'll say, inertia begins to change on that front. But for now, it's been pretty long. Let's leave it for here and continue on with part five of Stalingrad. At this part, we're going to be covering chapters one through 21. Confusingly, even though we're in part five of our series, as we've mentioned before, we are only in part two of the book, and the chapter count has now reset. As is only fitting for the beginning of a new section, we go back out to a bird's eye view of the situation, which is General Yeramenko arriving to Stalingrad to take control of the newly created Stalingrad Front, which is now considered separate from the Southwestern Front, which the Stalingrad was previous Stalingrad HQ previously was the remade the center of that. So now Stalingrad, it's its own thing. As a fun side point, Yermenko is assisted by political commissar Nikita Khrushchev. He doesn't come back up in this part. I just the name dropping of important people who are just like very minor characters is still very funny to me. Just a fun little bit. Grossman notes that this is around the time that Soviet forces begin to master a lot of the fighting techniques that they'd really floundered in in the early part of the war. And he turns around the early in the, on in the book, he talks about the lure of the step for the Red Army of you can always retreat more. Uh, but with the Soviet forces now mastering their strategic maneuvers, he writes that the Germans, for their part, began to feel that dangerous lure of the vast spaces behind them, calling them to retreat. It was here that the Germans first learned the fear of encirclement, that cruel illness that afflicts the hearts, minds, and legs of both soldiers and generals. Uh, we also follow from here into a conversation about kind of the right way to look at art. I don't have a lot to say on this section. It's not super relevant to the story, but it is somewhat didactic. Follow the character of Yeramenka, or not the character, or at least Grossman's depiction of Yeramenka, who is a kind of striking figure, uh, one that has a clear mind for what interests him, and also a very clear mind for specifically what does not interest him. And uh, we get this great depiction of what the HQ in Stalingrad it kind of spiritually feels like. Grossman writes, When troops are stationed in a forest, it feels as if they are bringing the mechanical breath of the city into a kingdom of birds, beasts, beetles, leaves, berries, and herbs. When troops and HQs are quartered in cities, they seem to bring with them a sense of space, of field and forest, of the free life of the steppe. In the end, however, both city streets and bright forest glades are torn apart. Both become mere theaters for the fury of war. So he continues to describe that although the HQ is now located in Stalingrad itself, and the war is closer than ever and it's afflicting everyday life more than it ever has, Work and life are still going on as usual, uh, bound by, as he writes, the usual ties of family, friendship, and workplace. We join Yeramenko's office, and we have a number of war reporters uh, through the lens of a war reporter named uh, Balakin, um, and they're all kind of debating while they're waiting for Yeramenko to arrive, uh, recovering debates between reporters who cover the front line and reporters who cover HQs, or kind of back line, and the difference in their reporting, the difference between the optimists and the pessimists. And when Yeramenka finally arrives and they begin asking him questions, uh, actually, Yeramenka kind of jumps down the throat of one of the optimists uh, when the optimist is almost congratulating him on the death-defying or ready-to-die soldiers who look at it as if it's a, quote, holiday, which is a line that Yeramenka takes a special offense at. At this, Grossman writes, Yeramenka narrowed his eyes. Enough of that nonsense, he said. Which of us really wants to die? After a moment's thought, still looking at the speaker, he added, Death's no holiday, and none of us are eager to die. Neither you, comrade rider, nor me, nor those Red Army's foot soldiers. And then, with still greater indignation, no, nobody wants to die. 
Fighting the Germans, though, that's another matter. He goes on to say when Balkin tries to intercede, Do you think soldiering is just a matter of yelling URA and rushing into the arms of death? As if death's a holiday. No, there's more to being a soldier than being in a hurry to die. So, comrade Ryder, we do not want to die. We do not see death as a holiday, and we will not retreat from Stalingrad. That would put us to shame before the whole people. And at this, the writers in the room begin to kind of have a better sense, uh, have a sense that they are didn't entirely understand both the optimist and the pessimist, that the optimists who had the perspective that the Red Army was ready to die en masse in order to defend the cities, but also the pessimists who thought, no, we really won't be defending this city. We'll be retreating again. At this point, we join Pavel Andreev. If you don't remember who Pavel Andreev is, don't worry. I also forgot. I look, took me. This is the guy we were mentioning earlier that I totally forgot that he was a character before. <laughs> until we got a little while in and I began to put some pieces together. So keep in mind, Andreev is a friend of Alexandra Shaposhnikova, or rather he was a friend of her husband and is still kind of has, I don't remember if it said that he kind of has like a thing for her or he's just like, he wants to be her friend, but he's, he's close to, he feels a kinship with Shaposhnikova. And Andreev is a model worker, but he's not an educated one. He's kind of, he came up in the steelmaking factory uh, by his own hand and by his own knowledge. And Grossman writes of him, poets do not need to read textbooks about poetry. It is they, after all, who determine the birth of verse and the laws of the word. Although Andreev himself respects the other more educated workers, they seem to have respect for him. It's a very, very Soviet work environment. The educated, the uneducated, they all work great, they all work together. But opposite Andreev's kind of model life in the factory at home, he has, well, a rather unmodeled life. He lives with his wife, Arvara, and his daughter-in-law, Natalia, as well as his uh, grandson, Varvara and Pavel Andreev, their own son, had went missing in the early days of the war. And Varvara and the daughter-in-law, they're constantly at each other's throats. Even though Andreev himself is a great, a very prodigious reader, all the librarians love him, which actually came of his family in so much conflict. He trying to read books of socialism, trying to figure out, how do I get my family to stop fighting? It's brought him pleasure, but it's never managed, he's never managed to um, figure out how to get them to stop, which is a secret shame of his, that he cannot have this model family too. Varvara, for her part, is uh, noted to be, like many other women in this book, like the conversation Matt and I had last time, uh, a great beauty, which is why Andreev uh, pursued her many years ago. And she takes great pride in her life. Well, she takes great pride, rather, I should say, in the position that her husband has and the kind of status it brings, that the model worker he is and the respect it brings and the, the notoriety he has. Uh, however, as Grossman writes, but had anyone asked Varvara whether she loved her husband, she would merely have shrugged. It was a long time since she had given any thought to the question. Yeah, this is that an one, interesting yeah. one. <laughs> this, this characterization of the family, it's very, um, I know the more relevant Tolstoy Say work, uh, War and Peace is the one we talk, bring up all the time, but it calls to mind the Tolstoy quote from the beginning of Anna Karenina, happy families are all alike, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Every character, every family in this uh, story really has their own character. In a cool way. I like I like the way he writes the dynamics. And also, I should say, as will happen, expounds on those dynamics. He's keen to interrogate that, not just set it down and say, this is what it is. We follow from here into more detail about the unhappiness of Varvara and Natalia's life. Uh, of course, Varvara, she has not quite had the life she wanted. Like it said, uh, although she's happy with the position that her husband's work has brought her, she's not personally fulfilled in this. Uh, and especially her darling son, who's gone missing, uh, who is a big feature in her life, the fact that he's gone, and the fact that Natalia, her daughter-in-law, who goes out and sees friends all the time, goes out to watch movies, and leaves uh, Varvara to watch 
uh, her grandson all the time, she feels that she's really not a fit uh, mother for her grandson and that uh, Pavel Andreev is not really very present and she wants to leave because she's so terribly afraid of being bombed. But Andreev insists that they must stay so he can keep working. She's deeply unhappy. And for Natalia's part, she's not allowed to be just, you know, an, a disliked daughter-in-law either. We follow along with her story and she goes out to see her friends because her husband, her darling husband, is missing. She goes out to see movies because of how much stress she's under. Uh, she, like, can't, like, it's hard to raise her son because she's under great emotional distress over the war and uncertainty and her own life. And at one point, Varvara, it's mentioned, goes out to, to cry and, well, there's a moment of kinship. There was no getting away from the bitterness of her present life. She did not want Natalia to see her tears, and so she went out into the garden to weep among the cheerful red tomatoes. But Natalia was already there, sitting on the ground and weeping. You may recall in the, I want to say it was the first or second part of this book, Pavel Andreev, when he left the dinner party of the Shaposhnikovas, he's accompanied by an old Bolshevik, Mostovsky, who is a prodigious writer. Mostovsky comes by to see Pavel, but instead runs into Varvara, and Varvara is happy to tell Mostovsky of her life stories. At the same time, speaking of the Shaposhnikovs, Zhenya and Marussia receive a letter and find out that Ida Semyonova, who is Seryozha's mother, she is married was married to Dmitri, Alexandra's first son, who has, of course, been exiled. Ida Semyonova, in exile in Kazakhstan, is dead. And they don't know how to deal with this, and they certainly don't want to tell Seryozha, so they decide to hide it from him for now. We go over to Spiridonov, again, Marusia's husband, who is attending a meeting with Priyakhin. Priyakhin is kind of the head of industry here in Stalingrad. As we enter, the office is a jumble. It's a mess. There's so many things going on. We have uh, news of victories and defeats. Oh, playing over radio, the, the office, which once was so full of information about factories and farming, is now full of uh, reports on steel for tanks and battle lines and where can we source new things because we've lost this supply line to the war. And it's so present now that it, it's just in everyday life. Even not military officers, but simply People who work in industry, officers, heads of industry are wearing military tunics and carrying revolvers around, even if they don't necessarily know how to use them. Which, by the way, is also, I mean, that, maybe this is, I'm reading too much into it, but a parallel into Grossman's own life for when he was first inducted into the Red Army. He was also given a uniform and a gun, and his editor, although he received them quite, you know, quite happily, his editor had to pull him inside and say, hey, do you know how to shoot a gun? To which Grossman said, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't know how to shoot a rifle either. Okay. And then they had to get a, a veteran who worked as a reporter with them to take him under his wing for like the next two months to teach him how to use weaponry. <laughs> good, good. Uh, although it's noted by David Ortenberg, Grossman's editor, that uh, apparently Vasily Grossman was quite a good shot with the handgun. Uh, Grossman well, spirit don't. <laughs> That was his condition for, for turning in the, the writing he did. Yes, I give you thousands and thousands of pages to edit. You also get to oblige me. <laughs> how good I am at shooting You get things. to build my legend. Yes. Yeah. While Spiridonov is waiting to talk to Priyakhin because he's so busy, he goes to have lunch with some other people who he used to know. Most of them it's mentioned that he was not on good terms with now, previous to the war. But as they're discussing... Uh, they're just kind of making small talk. They're being more polite than usual. And the other man says to Spiridonov, but you're from Yaroslav, aren't you? You're not a Stalingrader yourself. We're all Stalingraders now, said Spiridonov. We are indeed, said Filipov, impressed by these simple words. We're all Stalingraders. 
Today's news bulletin was so grim. To Spiridonov, it felt as if everyone around him had suddenly become very close. All were friends and comrades. Uh, and this is something to know and put a pin in this to talk about the difference between this and how the community of Moscow is talked about a little bit later. I'm going to dub it the Cosmopolitan chapter, if I may. Mm-hmm. I think you can. <laughs> very I much think can. I can. I think I can. I want to talk about it a little bit later, but Katerina Clark, who wrote, well, who's written a million things, she <laughs> <laughs> published a lot on socialist realism, and we talked about her work on that. But she wrote another book that has to do with cosmopolitanism in specifically the Soviet Union and in kind of during Stalinism called Moscow, the Fourth Rome, that deals with the Soviet Union and its kind of cosmopolitan ambitions. And it's really interesting to think about. And I really felt it in this like part. And we can talk about it a little bit more later, but I just want to tease that out there. So if you're thinking about clicking off the episode, don't you dare, because we're going to talk about all that hot That's academia right. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all that ha- hot academic analysis of cosmopolitanism in the Soviet Union. You know it. I mean, it's just kind of, it, everybody's just mushed together at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like almost the high point of the cosmopolitan ambition. There's a lot of scenes where I specifically noticed this time. I mean, there has been stuff about other nationalities, but it's like very explicit this time. That's a good point, yeah. We'll, we'll get really into that in a second, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so finally, Spiridonov is invited into Priyakin's office, and uh, they have a discussion about Stalgrez and, and what he needs in order to keep it running. But Priyakin kind of cuts him off rather rudely and abruptly, uncharacteristically for him, and basically tells him, you are to run Stalgrez as hard as you can, as long as you can, as much as you can. And then when I give you the order, you're going to dynamite it and then you're going to evacuate your family. Or you're going to evacuate your family, and then you dynamite it. Uh, which leaves Spiridonov shaken with this implicit assumption from the head of the industry that we are going to lose Stalingrad. So at the same time, or rather a little bit later actually, Spiridonov is dropping his wife Marussia off at an orphanage. And now Marussia is... I don't entirely understand her job, but it, it, as I understand it, she kind of works as an investigator to make sure that various state uh, apparatus, apparatuses, apparatus, apparati, apparati, <laughs> various state apparati are working as they should. And in this case, she's visiting an orphanage of which they received a number of reports that uh, the director Tokorova is not running as running it as she should. She's giving kickbacks to her family. Uh, there's a woman there who is frequently drunk and sings to the children and brings a truck driver back to her room. I don't know, sounds like kind of a fun person to be around. Maybe not. But, in a, you know, I guess not in an for, not in a minist- Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it. You make a fair point. <laughs> yeah, I guess in an administrative sense, that's pretty obvious why that could be a problem. So she's Soviet HR, I guess. Soviet HR. <laughs> <laughs> so as Marussia is entering this children's home to go talk with the director, she sees a lot of art in the walls, which depicts heroic battle against the Germans, and she thinks about her arguments with Genya about art. I um, love this. This was my favorite thing of the whole book. Yeah. Oh, I'm just gonna. I've got. I've got a long line to read here. Um, we can discuss it more later. As she's looking at the art, it brought to mind the many arguments she had about art with Genya. She, of course, was right, and Genya was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Genya. Yeah, yeah, naturally, Genya painted what mattered to Genya, whereas this artist painted what mattered to everyone. 
And she begins to have more of a dialogue with herself, and she kind of thinks, anyway, what was this truth of Genia's relating to the truth of, of Genia's work, or what she says was truth? There were two truths, not one. There was a vile, dirty, cruel, and humiliating truth that made it harder to live, and there was the truth of this pure soul, born to put an end to Genia's vile and humiliating truth. Put a pin in that. A little harsh. Yeah. I just thought it was entertaining that in such a serious situation on so many fronts, she's like, you know what? I was right. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, of course, you know, the relationship between Grossman and Gorky was a bit strained. Gorky seemed to be fond in some ways of Grossman, but often like kind of not mad, but exacerbated by Grossman's failure to be a socialist realist as he understood it. Yeah. And it's kind of funny that this is, despite a lot of the book being pretty, I would say, straight, like standard line, I would say, kind of like Soviet understandings of the war. This one's interesting because in a second, Marussia is actually going to be kind of, there's a rug is going to be pulled out from underneath her in this particular one, which is a very, very, I mean, in my mind, clear continuation of that conversation of the two truths that happened at the family dinner earlier and, of course, happened in real life between uh, Gorky and Grossman when Gorky was reviewing. Um, I want to say it was either his book, uh, Stephen Kolchugin or uh, Gluchauf. Tokareva and Marussia talk more about it. And to point of Matt talking about the cosmopolitanism of like the talking about the diversity of all the people brought together. The children at this at this particular orphanage are, are all war orphans. Some are brought by soldiers, some are brought by people, and some came by themselves. And she notes that at night they actually go to that when, when the sky's full of planes, they go to the children for advice on what to do because the children's know which planes are German and which planes are Soviet, uh, the ones who found their own way to the orphanage, much better than the adults can. Um, and she's ready to talk about all the children. There's many, many different, uh, from many different backgrounds, those children from, from Kazakhstan, Polish children. Uh, I think I wrote down exactly all their backgrounds, but she talks about great pride about the diversity. Uh, she points out to the crowd and, and says at one point, the fair-haired one's an orphan, a Polish Jew. Hitler slaughtered all her family. And the other one with the doll is from a family of Volga Germans. So yeah, great variety of people here. Um, what I should say is that when Marussia brings up that art, Tokareva actually says, that was actually drawn by a girl who's never seen the war. And she reveals that all the art drawn by the children who have seen the war, they hide because they can't bear to look at it. But one child, she says, drew Russian prisoners of war eating rotten horse meat. No, I can't bear to look at a drawing like that. So actually, all the drawings which Marussia has been so admiring of are rather a false depiction of reality, whereas the real war that the children experienced and uh, have drawn about is actually hidden away because the adults can't bear to can't bear to think about it. Yeah, I was going to bring up that line, but I thought you were leading to it, and I didn't. I didn't want to steal your thunder. Thank you, thank you. Well, it's, it, you, well it's, we can talk more about it because it's interesting. Yeah, it is. So Marussia goes to talk to some more of the children, and after her investigation, she realizes that pretty much all the complaints about this place are basically unfounded. It seems that Tokareva has been doing a very good job uh, with everything, all the cases where it's, it's something was alleged against her, it seems it was misunderstood, and actually she had acted uprightly, in fact, maybe more uprightly than I could have been expected of her. And even more harshly than because of how she was perceived. And so she's like, okay, I'm ready to put in a good word for her and, and go on a limp to defend her here. I think uh, this, these are all wrong. Uh, but before she goes, she turns around and says, oh, well, there's that one woman, uh, you know, the one who drinks. She, of course, will need to be fired. And Tokareva says, uh, well, of course, I'm happy to do that. But you should know that uh, 
that's the woman who was comforting those children. And I forgot to mention earlier that there was a child whose parents were lost to whose parents were lost to a German airstrike, which actually goes in much greater detail. Yeah, that was a and, horrifying. Uh, only yeah, it's passage. it's heartbreaking in like three uh, pages. passage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's bad. And he will basically not talk to anyone, refuses to eat. And there's only one woman who has a certain way about him. This woman who, with all the children, really has a, such a, a knack for bringing the best out of them, who's taking care of him, which Marussia comments on approvingly. Tokareva reveals to her that that's that woman. And Marussia, quote, looked at Tokareva and broke off mid-sentence. It was as if she had been walking along a broad path, and out of nowhere, an abyss had opened before her. It's so hard, she says to Tokareva on the verge of tears. So hard to understand. And that's where we love off at them. Yermanka visits Priachin and the two have a discussion about the war, about industry. Yermanka kind of chastising Priachin for expecting that this is going to go badly, that they're going to lose Stalingrad. Um, and and Yermanka kind of says, it's not about defending Stalingrad and we don't need to save Soviet industry like he planned for. We're defending the Soviet Union itself now. And that's where we're finally at that. That's where we've got to draw the line here. Oh my God, there's still so much more in this part. <laughs> I got to say, I don't really know how true this is i haven't seen the geographical map of steel production and the like now i don't know if this was just my education but whenever battle of stalingrad was mentioned which was of course few and far between we were always taught just like stalin really didn't want to lose stalingrad because it had his name on it it seems to be that is part of it in the book but the majority is the fact that like the majority of steel production was happening at this point in the city and that yeah. that seems to be a bigger uh, reason to not blow up your city and retreat? Yeah, yeah. There's I'm just going to put that out there reasons. in case uh, anyone else had that uh, misconception as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, from this point on, words Priachin goes to talk to to Krimov, uh, an old friend of his, and they discuss the war uh, and their past and everything they've been through. And there's this interesting line that Krimov, I think, at one point, is kind of chastising Priachin. And says to him, a Bolshevik must do what the party, and therefore the people, requires him to do. If his understanding of the needs of the time is in accord with the parties, then he will do the right thing. And then Priyakin kind of turns around and, and, like it says, talks about that approvingly, but also says to him, you're a destroyer of the old, but are you a builder of the new? Did you think we were going to get a Turgenev <laughs> reference in here? Did you <laughs> no, think he was going to drop that absolute fat Turgenev <laughs> reference in here no yeah i didn't you didn't i didn't and, think we'd I mean, see a fathers and sons and yet didn't think we'd see a bizarra versus uh i want to say Pyotr uh pavlovich Redux? pavel petrovich <laughs> pavel petrovich thank you yeah it was it was yeah i mean we had seen mothers and daughters and now we've seen fathers and sons <laughs> <laughs> It does call into question um, why Pavel Petrovich didn't think of this line at the time, but you know that's all. That's what the, the passage of time is all about. <laughs> <laughs> it just it does bring so, up what a challenge it is when you're a revolutionary group to then have to transform to be state builders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I'm not it, being I mean, sympathetic is, it, necessarily. I'm just saying, like, it's an objectively difficult challenge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. 
at this, we, let's go back to the Shaposhnikovs for a second. They're the Zhenya, Marusia, and Alexandra in the house. Pavel Andreev, who is also at this time been told that he needs to get ready to destroy the steelworks, uh, stops by and tells him, hey, you should evacuate. And they kind of laugh him off. And then Stepan comes back and says, hey, we need to get ready to evacuate. And they also laugh him off. And uh, Zhenya at this point also has gone to see Krimov. Uh, she's been turned away by the door, which Krimov notes. Uh, I think it's, I want to say it's Priyakhan tells Krimov, oh, you should go talk to Zhenya. And, and Krimov is like, no, I'm going to have her turned away at the door, which is what happens. And as these people are arguing, I think this is Zhenya's point of view. Uh, she notes, the world was full of sorrows. With all their weaknesses, these people were more precious to her than ever. At this time, and so we're now we're going on to a larger point of view, in the second half of August, the Germans are closing in on the city of Stalingrad. Suryozha is with his work unit. He's kind of tied together with an older man, Polyakov. Uh, Polyakov is an older man who draws strength with his pride, that he needs to match these youngsters, and Suryozha pulls his strength from the exact opposite, that he needs to have the same perseverance as his elders. And we learn more about the particulars of all the people in this company. They, we learn about the, the leader who is portrayed as a weak but overly tough leader, and that you know, over-toughness coming from the from his weakness and we follow the individual stories of the men who are getting ready to fight uh, on the step and we're learning more about the particulars of Suryosh's comrades but this has gone on for too long enough so we'll, let's talk more about their particulars as we will continue to learn more about their unit next time when we continue on with 22 onward and probably covering a little bit more 21 because it's it's more particular stories because this has been a long summary already you had um, such a good that is, you had such a good cliffhanger though yeah uh, that is <laughs> It's, it is a good cliffhanger. We'll come back to it because it's, it's been a long time. It's almost like um, I drew it up that way. I didn't, but it's almost <laughs> like I did. Almost like it. I mean, we've been pretty lucky on that so far, but there's so many stories in this part. Normally, it's like covering two big stories and like one little one, but this one's just, uh, this one's a lot of stories. This one's Yuramenko's character and people interacting with him. This one's Pavel Andreev. This one's Spiridonov. This one is Krimov. This one's Yermenka and Priyakin coming together. This one is Marusia's. It, it's, it's there's so much happening in, in only a hundred pages here. Yeah, yeah. So we've put a pins in a lot of things. Uh, is there anything even before we get into the things that we've marked that we want to come back to talk about? Anything that you just broadly want to talk about? Life, more or less. Life. I think Fate. that not only is it the kind of cosmopolitan chapter, but it is kind of the, I don't know how to describe it. It's cosmopolitan in a lot of ways, not just in terms of peoples and nationalities, but also very much in the thinking of creating art. For me, it was a very sort of meta part. There was a lot of asides on the creation of art and how that ties in kind of with real life as well. The whole discussion of the steelworks and comparing it to a, a poet was kind of interesting. I don't know. I guess it's it's something that's probably on your mind in the very height of a war, the way that kind of everything needs to mesh together almost perfectly for you to be able to pull off quite a defense and pushback as well. Yeah, it, it brings to mind for me a line from one of Grossman's journals. I think they brought this up, I want to say back in part maybe three, where he talks about being in, in a house with soldiers in Stalingrad before he leaves, and they're listening to uh, Beethoven's Fifth. Uh, and he says that they listen to it with the kind of solemnity that he would have expected from churchgoers and writes on the power of art to, even in this horrible place, in this horrible time, can draw people in, in with such beauty. And this feels like I'm almost a meditation on that, but I think the thing that draws me in, and let me know if you see it differently, it's kind of, it's an uneven meditation, and some of that's going to be because 
of course, we're reading something. We're reading a, a book which would eventually have to go through censors. So not every point of view is the same. But you know, early on when he talks about art, it's he's very dogmatic about the way that art should be. Uh, what I would expect, like a more straightforward kind of uh, a doctrinal understanding of art. But later on, we also have uh, Marussia espousing a line, which of course is taken from Gorky's understanding of art which is then overturned almost or made fun of or exposed to be not quite true because when she talks about the truth of, of like what's bright overcoming the truth of what's nasty and vile, of course, that that's a fake truth. That's a truth written by a child who has never seen war, whereas the children who have and their truth, which is well, has more verisimilitude because it's true to life, is too horrible to be looked upon, so it's hidden away. They, I mean, they're not exactly in direct conflict, but there's a tension that exists between those two views yeah, it's kind of like an aesthetic difference that he's posing. See, that's why I think beauty is so important, actually, in this book. And it is a fair critique that he does describe all the women as beautiful. But but it is it's interesting, the triangle between kind of truth, beauty, and art, and trying to figure out what the relationship between those three are. And I'll be damned if I'm about to do it on a podcast, because uh, <laughs> certainly I don't think that's my job to decide right because i mean i guess if you look i mean i i mean i kind of painted the scene as kind of marussia having like oh haha you were wrong but i, I don't I, I don't think you necessarily need to read it that way you could read it as uh, even if it's you know you could read it almost as a reinforcement of like the truth of the children saw war was so vile so awful that it had to be hidden away that when she sees this she feels a sense of uh, of course it's it's about partisans fighting the german army and she feels a sense of lightness and like yes we can win this war so you could, if you were of the mindset, to read the fact that the dark truth was hidden away and the bright lie was shown to people, you could read that as, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's the bright truth that needs to overcome the vile truth of the past, I think. So maybe it's not quite, it doesn't have quite as much tension as I might have posed it earlier to your point. The relationship kind of, it's very nuanced. Mm -hmm. And I'm not certain it was read in such a way that one side is meant to be read as right or the other side is. Yeah, I mean, I think it... it... I mean, poses the question or commentary that most people probably by now un understand or feel, which is that socialist realism, although kind of intended to be realist, is not truthful necessarily. Um, right. But that's also not necessarily bad. I'm not quite sure how inspiring it would be if you were in a city that was about to be perhaps under siege and you were reading stories about your prisoners of war eating horse meat, uh, that wouldn't exactly inspire much confidence or camaraderie, I would imagine. No, not quite. Not quite. It's interesting. It's, it's easy to look back in, in hindsight, but yeah, I don't know. There's a lot to think about here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's a, that is a huge feature of this chapter. All the, I feel like also, in, in some ways, this is a continuation of Grossman trying to dispel myths about the war, in the sense that, of course, this book is also intended to be him trying to tell you what the war was like. And I'm sure to some degree he felt this was myth-busting in a way of like, no, this is what it was like, uh, which is what I have to imagine the conversation between Yermanka and the reporters is when the reporters are, some reporters are all pessimists and say, we're going to lose the city. Uh, and other reporters are optimists. They say, no, the Red Army is going to throw their bodies down before the tanks and they will make sure the city, city stays you know, in, in Soviet hands. And then Yeramanka comes and rebukes both sides and says, no, we're not going to leave the city behind. But no, we're not happy to die. Uh, soldiering is a job and I would rather my soldiers be alive and technical and I don't want to throw them into the meat grinder. 
But of course, this exists at the same time that later on, Yermenka forcefully delivers Stalin's decree of not one step back, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, has been noted by many commanders that there was, um, you know, a fear of, of even retreating. Even when retreating would have made good sense, it would not have lost anything. You know, the fear of looking like you are retreating led in real life men to die in situations they didn't necessarily need to. This feels like simultaneously an attempt to not propagandize, but I'm sure in some ways write, trying to write history of like, no, this is what people should understand. Not to say that it was false. I don't think it was. I'm sure that there were that maybe even the real Yermenka would express something similar. But it, it just interesting in that sense of looking at this as also an educational piece of literature in an educational, very intentional sense, more so than I would say most others tend to be. I think he wants it to be because there's literally scenes where people describe themselves as they say, doing research on war, and it's them reading War and right. Peace. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really research. But all at the same time, it's also like War and Peace is constantly referenced. I can't, I think I lost track. I want to say at least three or four times people bring up Tolstoy's depiction of the, count, the, the Council of Feely uh, from War and Peace. It's inseparable. <laughs> that, and then there's also other plot points that you could draw, like this whole discussion on art and painting and truth is very much um something that's discussed in anna karenina when mm. anna's on her kind of called honeymoon trip with vronsky and he takes up painting he can't paint anything good because he can't paint anything truthful and so it's it's a little bit different because here good and truth are not necessarily uh, one and one aligned whereas i think for tolstoy at least in that section they might be Right. I'll pose that one out there for anyone who's listened to both <laughs> series. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. I'm gonna speaking. Okay. Now this, this is the Anna Karenina episode. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna put on my tinfoil hat. Please. Genya and Novikov. I'm not saying that even this was a conscious or they're meant to be. Con that you're not supposed to look at them and think of Anna and Vronsky, but I can't deny the fact that. So there's a part where they run into each other, kind of like a train station in the middle of nowhere, and they have a pleasant conversation, which Novikov later reveals was actually his doing because he started getting on a train and then he got on a train which is going the wrong way and just so he could have that conversation with her and act like oh yeah no i'm just on the way and they they part peacefully why would just you thinking, admit oh, that just, yeah, why would you do that <laughs> uh, but then he says you know i had actually added a whole extra day to my travel to go the, like, the other way <laughs> which to your point why would you admit that for if you did do that but it did it definitely called the mind the vronsky anna run in at the station of course, uh, Novikov being, well, at that, at one point being impossibly more suave by the fact that it did not immediately look to, and he did not immediately admit to stalking her. So I guess that's good if you just as like, she comes away like, oh, that was a good conversation. I'm glad we were kind of ran into each other versus, wow, you've been following me this whole time. So that's already a better foot. But then he admitted to doing that. <laughs> anyway, so it was, I, that was, it was a very present parallel in my mind when I was, when I was reading yeah. that. And uh, yeah. I don't think I wanted to bring it up. I don't remember what part that was actually in of this episode but since we've already made this the intercredit episode uh tinfoil hat on mm -hmm. yeah so can i go on a minor rant about moscow the fourth rome let's do it okay now it's been a while since i've read this so i'm a little bit rusty and it's honestly not that like it, it's not necessary for me to recount the whole book here on the podcast but it is interesting and i think it is a much more nuanced view into the stalinist period than we normally get which is kind of honestly i don't know maybe this is my own preconception but anybody anything that i've read that's talked about stalinism is just bleh, boring mm -hmm. same thing every time 
Stalin, 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 Stalin. This book sure. talks a little bit more about kind of the intellectuals around that time, which is something that mm. I'm interested in for my own research. And so Clark is talking about the way that a lot of the leading Soviet intellectuals were trying to make their capital sort of the center for this anti-fascist, international, leftist kind of space to exist. And that kind of comes to a head here in this chapter where you have everybody from all over the Soviet empire, which to this point has been defined by the amount of space that it has and how spread out people actually are. Whereas here you have the opposite. You have the complete compression of the Soviet empire and Soviet space into basically one city and everywhere you go, it's commented on how many different nationalities are present and all of the attractions that are in Stalingrad. It actually sounds kind of kind of cool to have uh, been there for a small portion of this, maybe. Of course, not to mention, you know, the terrible circumstances that have brought many of the people uh, here, of course. Kind of interesting. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that goes around with kind of this anti-fascist central intelligentsia kind of circle. And there are not just people thinking about this, but there are filmmakers that are working on similar messaging. Uh, one, one of the, the biggest films in the Soviet Union, just probably in general, but also that kind of goes to back up this point, is a film called Circus that came out in uh, 1936. All right, circuses uh, is still a banger. Yeah, I mean it is. It's it's known for really, like the music is kind of the big part of of circus, but it was <laughs> kind of an interesting film. Just the brief part that talks about if you want to talk about empire in cosmopolitanism, the way that this can kind of connect is that one of the main protagonists is an American uh, circus performer, uh, and she's chased out of the U.S. by the Klan after giving birth to a black baby. And, you know, basically she's able to be happy in the USSR and everybody loves her baby and it's not an issue at all and et cetera, et cetera. And this is, first of all, we're steering into a topic that it should basically be its own episode and or its whole podcast. But I, I see this kind of, it almost, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, but this sort of overwhelming sense of camaraderie that can be present in the book kind of almost eliminates all of the nuance of the situation because for uh, whoever says we're all Stalingraders now that is true but some people lost way more than others um <laughs> yeah like the war predominantly you know the the cities that were destroyed i mean there was a lot of non-russian cities that were destroyed let's put it that way and I feel like the way history is remembered is the fact that the Russians won World War II when it was uh, much more than that. Actually, yeah, between the Soviet Union yeah. or really Rush, the Russian Republic of the Soviet Union and Germany, there's actually a couple places like, oh, I don't know, a few. Poland, Ukraine, yeah, a few. Belarus. To, yeah, just to yeah, say just the least. a lot. Yeah, there's more, a lot of places, more than we've mentioned. Yeah, which, and so there's a few yeah. points where Grossman's talking about, oh, how wonderful it is that the that the Belarusians and the Ukrainians and and the Poles can come together as as one country and fight the the fascists, which is which is true, they did, but it it does kind of eliminate some of the nuance and kind of 
I think yeah. kind of creeps into the sort of imperial overtones or undertones, I guess, of some of the book. And that's yeah, that is a good point, um, isn't it? it well, yeah. It, well, that's a good point because <laughs> actually, it's only something that I've been noticing. I haven't really brought it. Yeah, this is a good place to talk about it. Maybe so often in actually my language, I'm alternate too, kind of unconsciously. A lot of times when I talk about the defense of the Soviet Union or you know, like for the soul of the Soviet Union, what Grossman's actually written is the soul of Russia, the soul of the Soviet Union, yes, or the absolutely. soul of yeah, the like defending Russia. This is Russia's battle. Yeah, and and you're right. Like talking about so, for example, that child's drawing is of I think it's I want to say it's Belarusian or or Ukrainian partisans fighting against the Germans portrayed very brightly and you know the part like you say the partisans are like said oh they're bravely fighting in its own ways kind of and again this could be just because uh, Grossman and for just because of the and this is written or at least this part of the book may have been written early or late in the war or early after the war it was bad to be a Red Army soldier fighting the Germans like way worse than it was in pretty much any other theater unless you're like in the Pacific theater however it was actually way worse if you recall our episode with um, I want to say it's Svetlana Alexeyevich's um let me what's the title of the book the unwomanly, shelf, face look over. the unwomanly face of war yeah partisans especially partisan women way worse like to a like astounding degree considering how badly regular members of just the Soviet Red Army were treated it was not equitable it, it was after the war this is this is a saying that was often printed you know everyone suffered equally do not divide the deed essentially saying to say like we all suffered like let's not focus on who suffered the most and of course yes the jews suffered way more the belarusians suffered a great deal the ukrainians the poles uh you know many other people in these in border country moldovans romanians <laughs> like worse than mainland than the russian republic uh, not to say the Russian Republic did well, it did very, very badly in, in its treatment, but like it could get worse and it did get worse. And that, to your point of the way empire is formed in the minds of its writers, is not reflected. Which no. is interesting because Grossman spent most, was born in modern day Ukraine, was spent most of his life in modern day Ukraine, was educated in Kiev, was married, both times he was married, was married to Ukrainian women. But it still has such a Russia-centric view of of matters. Well, yeah, in in some ways, I think definitely. I don't know. I think that's it's almost like I want to bring on an expert to talk more about that. Yeah, I want to have I because it's such a long series, and there's so much that it's not my particular specialty. But I know it's more that I want to delve into, and that I think would be so worthwhile. For other people to hear as well right and not to mention myself just because it sounds interesting to learn about um yeah so yeah i really want to do to deviate from our form after this for some episodes and just do i don't know just some other stuff related yeah. to stalingrad that would be interesting like you know grossman has his revisionism of stalingrad what is the revisionism of Grossman then and how does that right you know play into especially I mean the big hanging question that we're not answering or even really discussing is of course the way that you know the myth continues to develop even into modern mm. day Russia uh, and there's you know a whole lot to be said about that for sure yeah I mean yeah, yeah I will say for Grossman although I, I would in some ways categorize him as almost like a writer of empire uh, in the way that this was portrayed. Also, what Grossman was more the edge margins 
aware of like the various because like again in the orphanage mentioning you know the various people i mean the volga you know, the fact that the the um, one of the orphans is a volga german we should keep in mind the volga germans uh suffered greatly during the war at the hands of the red army for the most part after the war they were exiled en masse a great deal died during this exile from the soviet union there are great many uh minority communities in the red in the soviet union that during and after the war were treated as hostile and alien and were in great amounts exiled or killed and so the fact that grossman consistently tries to bring them in and not not in a great way but even just like you know even even it's easy now to say like oh those portraying the struggle as belarusians as you know heroic you know like well of course it was that also hides the dark reality of what it was like to be a partisan um that's not necessarily what every other writer at the time was doing too so I think there should be something to be said that as these Grossman's writing, easy to criticize from just like a pure, like just in, engaging with it as literature's empire, but also Grossman himself did have an eye and did have a sensitivity towards that and did does include that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting tension if we keep using the word tension, but it is interesting to think about the relationship between empire and then sort of probably the leftist intellectuals who did not necessarily want you know, their area to become an empire necessarily, but we're trying to build these sort of cross-cultural currents and mm. relationships and connections, which of course they're basically all from Moscow. So that kind of can almost, <laughs> you know, reinforce that feeling of empire, but it's, it's interesting. And there's yeah a lot to be said about it. More than we have time for. I do want to say quickly, I think it's funny that the general sentiment of, of, Stalingrad at this point in the book is we talk, to great, we talk a great deal about the oneness, the unity of people uh, whereas when we're in Moscow he's kind of talking about how it's actually a very divided city between, it's not just it's not just the people who stay there have unity it's people who stay there have unity against the people who left Yeah, yeah. which is an interesting, which of course you could say the same about Stalingrad but that's not, the, the framing of it is, is funny which maybe reflects Grossman's own disgust at some of the generals later on who the unity felt that he felt so good at Stalingrad suddenly something so deserted so many of the same people who fought there soon after <laughs> I don't know if that was a feeling reflected in it I do want to add real quickly go back to circus for a second first of all you know circus wasn't necessarily reflective of the way actually minority treat, communities were treated in the Soviet Union however Perhaps banger not, of a movie no. <laughs> um, and it's I think it's absolutely how funny it's hilarious how unsettled it is because not only is the American actor or the American circus performer driven out of the US for having a biracial child uh, she's also paraded around Europe under the like control of a mustache twirling German guy <laughs> um, who is like threatens yep. to reveal the, the existence of her biracial child who she fears that everyone will drive her out like she was driven out in America. And it's not until like he like at the end of the movie where he like pulls out her child like see see her son is black and like the crowd who you pan into it and suddenly revealed suddenly you realize like it's every community every minority community of the Soviet Union is represented there. It's like groups is, it goes, comes together as one take the the baby away from and literally sing the baby a lullaby in every single one of their languages as they pass him up and down gently keeping the baby away from the impotently angry German man with the <laughs> little toothbrush mustache jumping up and down trying to get the baby back it's a wild film <laughs> there's a lot more soviet films that people should watch that's just the endings the most of the film is just about trying to get a cannon to work for a circus act it's such a funny weird it, film. so it's soviet film is great because nobody understood pacing i don't think <laughs> like it just wasn't a cut like there's some films that i mean 
I, no, there's not some films that do that. It just, they're all wild in their own way. They are. I don't know if Ali Pitts has ever covered that on Russo Files Unite, but we should sure check that has. out. I'm sure if, he If has. he hasn't, let's invite him on to cover uh, that's like It's like one of the, like, if you were to pick like five films from the Soviet Union, that would be one of them. Actually, I don't think Ali has ever covered a circus. It's kind of a hard one because you shouldn't have three white guys covering circus. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 2.5 white guys. All right. Sorry. 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 <laughs> sorry for erasing you. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, I grew up on Leave It to Beaver. I objectively should lose any <laughs> any uh, claim to my Filipinoness. I grew up watching Leave It to Beaver, The Brady Bunch, and Gilligan's Island. I think I'm I am mathematically more white than, frankly, you and Allie combined. <laughs> So this has been, even by our standards, frankly, this has been a long one. Every single Stalingrad episode has been a long one. And if you're still listening, uh, thank you for sticking around to both one of our weirder series, our less known literature series, and definitely more wide-ranging conversation, a little bit less, I would say, disciplined folks than we usually are, uh, because I feel like this is a book which you kind of need to bring in a, a much greater range of thoughts and experiences into. So thank you for sticking around. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. I'm looking forward to not to say I'm looking forward to finishing the series, but I'm I'm looking forward to I don't know completing a ten parter. That's a good chunk. That's our biggest uh, series ever. I mean, I think so. Close second with like Anna Karenina, but yeah, what are you gonna do? It's Anna Karenina. It's Anna Karenina. Well, uh, Matt, I gotta <laughs> ask you, as I always do have to ask you, even though we are again five parts into this series, what are we covering? Uh, in our next episode well next week uh or next episode you will be surprised to learn that we are going to be covering stalingrad part six we're going to be taking it all the way through chapter 42 of part two so so sorry about the overlap of the words parts between the book parts and our <laughs> series parts i realize now how confusing that is but you know you made it this far Just so now? good on you <laughs> I think we should have made it more confusing by instead of calling our episode parts like we normally do, instead calling them books uh, to be the op to be like yeah. a, a comparable alternative to parts. So then we've got Stalingrad books one through ten, whereas Stalingrad the actual book only has parts one through three. <laughs> All right, maybe for Life and Fate we can do that. I'm always <laughs> open to trying new things. I think Life and Fate is uh, going to be one gigantic verbal ayahuasca trip or audio, audio, audio ayahuasca trip maybe we'll just do one just one episode one <laughs> one 10 hour episode yeah it will be 10 hours but it'll be unedited if we do do one 10 hour episode i'm gonna be on ayahuasca for that <laughs> it will it'll be 10 hours unedited and then we're gonna take an eight month break a hiatus <laughs> uh, of tipsy tolstoy and then we're gonna emerge both having disappeared into the forest for months at a time mm -hmm. that's sustainable though that's good yeah, I that's think good so. For that, that's that's work life balance. <laughs> <laughs> One week on, eight months off. That's what I like to do. <laughs> that's how I, that's my work schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you. Oh, wait, we didn't do, we didn't do the drunk meter. No, we don't need. Oh yeah, Matt. Before we talk about our our wonderful wonderful patrons, I'm going to bring this in a little bit late. Maybe the fact that we did this in the wrong order will tell you what levels we're at but on a scale mm. of one to yeltsin where are you at like a six but it's not it has sure. nothing to do with the six it's just I, I think when we made the script i don't think we put this part in even though we do it every time yes unless it's on the wrong part of, no 
No, it's not. We just didn't put it in. That's good. Anyways, how are you doing? <laughs> Man, we are such professional podcasters. Can you believe we've been doing this for almost two years? I no. <laughs> no. I'm at a I would say a four point five. I once I finish this class, I think I'm gonna be definitely at a between a five and a six, but we've got so much in the circus. I got I got too excited. I love circus. Unironically, uh, I know that's not a one hundred percent accurate depiction of the Soviet Union. A lot to be said about it from a critical perspective, but just sheer enjoyment. I would take circus over any Marvel movie. I would take most things over any Marvel movie. <laughs> that's fair. Well, I grew up with comics. Well, mm-hmm. after the after the Leave It to Beaver era, I got really into like Marvel <laughs> comics. So, you know, I liked comics and I kind of, you know, I want to like the idea of Marvel movies and I do like stupid action flicks. However, okay. circus just has some charm to it. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, they got a canon. Actually, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, the So the, the child, the actual child actor used in that film was the son of an American, I want to say it was a singer who did come to the Soviet Union because of racism against him. Well, so you know. the son... Uh, I think he still lives in the Soviet Union. He actually, so I can't remember. I think the son actually served in the in the Soviet Navy before he became a poet. And he's he's really old now. But um, this guy, the guy who came over had two children and his daughter actually came back to the U.S. because of racism she faced in the USSR, uh, whereas the, the son stayed, which is really interesting because when I was learning Russian, uh, my teacher actually showed us episodes, like them both talking, documenting on them. It was really interesting to hear the guy talk because you could obviously hear English influence in his Russian, like saying, uh, when he's like talking about like the experience of black people in the USSR, USSR, he talked about he used the phrase um, uh, "ludi svet," which literally translates to "people of color." Very common English phrase, however, not not at all a common phrase in Russian. Very interesting to see that. Anyway, I'll, I'll link that in the in the show notes if you want to see what we're watching. It's fun from a Russian learning perspective and also a cultural perspective. Shout out to the three people that read our show notes because you put so much work into them. <laughs> um, I don't good. yeah. Yeah, if you do, thank you. Thank you. And I pre- thank you, Matt, for being one of those three people and I'm the other one. So if you're the third person, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we're going to be back with part six of Stalingrad. But before we let you go, we wanted to extend a thank you to all of our current patrons. Jay, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Pacrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so Matt tells me. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet Marsh by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.